much, Cameron. Thank you for having me. Let me share my screen with you. Hopefully this will work. Um, so I'm very happy to be joining you and talking about why trade finance matters in times of uncertainty. I will briefly go over uh, two papers. And the first paper is forthcoming in the Oxford issue, the supplement that you have just mentioned, and it's co-authored with Banu Demir from Bilkent University. And this paper is incredibly simple, but nevertheless, the issue is important and it has policy implications. So I think it's, it merits a discussion and it merits bringing it uh, to the attention of the world. Um, namely, the issue is trade finance and its importance during times of uncertainty. But let me start with some very basic observations. Um, in the beginning of the paper, we looked at the performance of exports relative to their historical average. So we took into account seasonality of exports of various products, and then we looked at what happened to, let's say, French or German exports month by month relative um, to the same periods um, in the past three years. And here the solid lines show you the estimated effects, while the dashed lines are the 90% confidence intervals. And what you see here is that since October, um, Germany and France have seen a decline in their exports relative to historical average. That is not surprising. There has been a slowdown in the Eurozone, which predates the pandemic. But then look at the figures for March. In France, it's a dip in exports of almost 40%. In Germany, it's over 20%. If you look at the US, the decline is smaller. It's on the order of 10%, while in Turkey, it's 25%. Actually, Turkey is quite an interesting case. It's a country where the pandemic, um, where the pandemic got later, and Turkey did not impose a lockdown on weekdays. Instead, they had lockdowns on weekends. So that means that during the period um, we are looking at, there was no supply shock. It is probably mostly the demand shock that we see here being responsible uh, for the decline in Turkish uh, exports. And of course, we wrote this paper a few weeks ago, by now, the figures for um, April are available and actually the globally we see an even bigger dip in international trade happening in April. Hopefully, April will be the, the bottom of, of that decline. Now, the, what we are interested in the paper is the resilience of exports. What type of exports prove to be more resilient um, than others. And the starting point of our paper is the observation that international trade is more risky than domestic trade. International trade involves shipping goods over long distances that often takes a lot of time and the world will change, can change while the goods are in transit. Demand may change, currencies, uh, exchange rates are shifting. Also, if you are doing business uh, with foreign buyers, chances are you don't know them, 
actually a lot of international trade relationships are short-lived. They speak different language. They are subject to different regulations. And if you actually have talked to exporters, you would have come across stories of exporters shipping goods and never seeing the money. I came across um, such a company in Jakarta, Indonesia. They told me they made a shipment to Bosnia and they said, well, look, we sent our goods. We never saw the money. Bosnia is far from Indonesia. It costs a lot of time, a lot of money to fly there. We don't speak the language. There isn't even our embassy in that country. So, you know, they never saw the money. They just let it go. Now, if there are adverse events happening in the world in times of crisis, uncertainty goes up. So you are even more worried than normally whether you will be paid for the goods you shipped whether you will receive the goods you have prepaid. So farms, traders, increase their demand for insurance. Actually at the EBRD, we are active in the trade insurance space and we have seen actually a big demand, increasing demand uh, for those services. So in this paper, we ask a very simple question. Have trade flows insured by trade finance instrument be more resilient uh, to the current crisis. So let me give you some background on how payment terms tend to be structured in international trade transactions. There are standard ways of doing so. There's something called cash in advance, also known as pay and pray. You pay for the goods and then you wait for the producer to ship them to you. So that means that as an importer, you bear the whole risk of the transaction. Of course, there is another possibility. The roles can switch and it may be the exporter who bears all the risk. This is under so-called open account terms. The exporter ships the goods and then uh, allows the buyer 30 or 60 or 90 days to make a payment. So in this case, it's the exporter who faces uncertainty about being paid. But of course, it is possible for the trading parties to shift the risk onto a bank. That can be done through the so-called letter of credit, where for a fee, a bank will insure an international trade transaction. It works in a very simple way. The importer approaches their bank and gets, purchases this instrument, letter of credit, which is a guarantee to the exporter that the exporter will be paid. Exporter, if the exporter is worried additionally about the bank in the importing country uh, going under, they can reconfirm the letter of credit, meaning they can obtain a guarantee from a bank in their own country, um, a guarantee against um, the bank in the importer country going up under. So then the exporter ships the goods and the importer will not get the ownership of the goods uh, until the importer makes a payment and the payment is sent to the exporter. Uh, so basically the bank serves at both an intermediary and an insurer, insurer and there is no, essentially this eliminates all the risk on the part of the trading partners. Of course, you know, there is a catch. It costs um, a 
a bit of money to make to purchase this instrument. The final type of um, payment terms is so-called documentary collection. It is a situation where banks are used as intermediaries, but they do not explicitly provide insurance. However, because the trading partners are dealing with a bank, they owe money to the bank. If you properly structure this, um, this transaction, it can help you mitigate risks. So in this very simple paper, what we did is we looked at Turkish data, monthly, monthly data between January 2018 and March of this year. These are figures on exports. They are dis disaggregated by the so-called six-digit codes under the harmonized system. That means that we have several thousand observations um, by product. There are several thousand products in those categories. And on top of that, we also know the payment terms that have been used uh, in those transactions. Turkey is actually unique among, among countries by requiring this information for both imports and exports and requiring proof that the payment terms stated are actually those payment terms that are actually uh, used. So what we did is we looked at how Turkish exports under various payment terms performed relative to their historical average. We controlled for product specific seasonality. We controlled um, for the fact that durable goods tend to be hit more by economic downturns. We allowed for different effects on intermediate goods, on goods that require greater contract intensity, or goods produced by sectors that are more dependent on external financing. And when we did this, we saw a striking pattern. If you look at cash in advance uh, export, those experienced a 40% decline in March of this year relative to historical average. Um, the uh, black line you see, that's the confidence interval. So cash in advance, that's pay and pray. That's a very risky um, form of, of trading good. S is open account. Um, again, open account experienced a 28% decline. Documentary collection, which involves bank intermediation and therefore leads to some mitigation of risk, was affected much less severely. While letter of credit, which provides insurance against the risk of non-payment and no delivery, experienced no decline relative to historical average. So even though the green bar is slightly negative, the confidence interval shows you that the effect is not statistically um, significant. It's not significantly different from zero. Then we consider the share of exports insured through letters of credit in total exports. Um, so here we did this at the product level looking at Turkish exports um, to all destinations, again, controlling for seasonality. And what you see that uh, in March of this year, there is an increase in share of exports that are um, traded in, on letter of credit terms. So exports 
that are insured through trade finance instruments. While before March, you, you don't see any change because um, as the confidence interval includes zero, prior to March, there is no statistically significant change in the share of exports backed by letters of credit relative to historical average. Now, when we repeat this exercise just for China, you see the same pattern, except that it happens earlier. It's in March where you see the spike um, in um, LC-based exports. Of course, China was facing um, the pandemic earlier, and therefore the uncertainty when trading with China was present earlier. Now, in our earlier work with Banu and Mathieu Creuset, um, we looked at uh, trade finance in more general terms. And in particular, what we did is we created an index of how dependent various products are on trade insurance. So we looked at how frequently or how prevalent the usage of letters of credit is for particular products. And essentially we backed out from that information uh, product specific components, which captures how, how much a given product needs uh, trade insurance. And then we looked at global trade flows during the financial crisis. We know that during the financial crisis, right, the, um, the banking system in some countries went into a standstill, and it was very difficult to obtain uh, trade finance instruments. Essentially, uh, trade finance dried out. And what we saw in our analysis is that products that typically are very reliant on using trade insurance took a bigger hit um, during the financial crisis when they were destined for countries where it wasn't possible to buy, to obtain this trade insurance. And also what we saw that intra-firm trade did better. It was more resilient than arm's length trade um, to the financial crisis. Why is that? Well, if you are trading uh, within your firm, if you are trading with a subsidiary that's located in a different country, there is no risk. You're trading um, just with your, um, within your company. Uh, if you are trading with, with a business partner who you don't know, you are um, bearing a big risk. And so not surprisingly, um, trading intra-firm trade, so trade done by multinational corporations, was much more resilient um, when it was destined for countries where it wasn't possible to obtain trade insurance. And in that paper, we tried to um, estimate to the importance of trade insurance uh, to the great trade collapse that took part in 2009. And we came up with a figure of about 10%. So a lot of the great trade collapse was due to the economic downturn to um, demand for goods drying out. But according to our estimate, 10% of that, of this collapse was due to inability to ensure trade flows. Of course, the, you know, the great trade collapse does not look like such a great trade collapse comparable to figures we are observing now. The decline in trade is bigger. So these are two very simple papers, but I think um, their findings matter. And they matter for the following reason. 
Since the financial crisis, we have observed a decline in the supply of trade finance. Now, as I was explaining letters of credit, I mentioned that often you need a bank that will reconfirm a letter of credit. So if you are um, doing business, if you are exporting to Nigeria and your Nigerian trading partner um, provides you with a letter of credit, you may have doubts whether the Nigerian bank will not go out, out of business. So you may want uh, to reconfirm your letter of credit. So these links between banks in uh, industrialized countries and emerging markets are extremely important for the good functioning of trade finance. Um, these correspondent, international correspondent banks, they reconfirm letters of credit. Um, they help the clear trade-related payments. And what has happened since the financial crisis is that we have seen an increase in regulation, regulation pertaining to combating money laundering, combating terrorism, regulations pertaining to sanctions. And banks are expected um, to know their customers, to know, have a lot of information about where particular trade shipments of, are going. And that means that you know, the, the reporting requirements are quite tough. And banks, which do not quite trust information they obtain from emerging markets, simply frequently choose not to take this risk, the risk of not having the information that is required by regulators. And they simply decide to exit trade finance in emerging markets. And according to a recent report by the WTO and the International Finance Corporation about 200,000 of correspondent banking relationships have disappeared during the past uh, decade. And that's about 20% um, of those, of all existing corresponding banking relationships. And African countries, Caribbean, Central Eastern Europe, and Pacific Islands have been particularly affected. And this matters because this means that going forward, we um, if uncertainty continues, if we have a second and perhaps even third wave of the pandemic, uh, trade with developing countries and emerging markets will be adversely affected um, due to inability of insure transactions. And also, you know, um, many observers are worried about how firms will fare through the crisis, in particular small and medium-sized enterprises. Um, the European Commission, for instance, is paying a lot of attention to SME exporters. And it is, and you know, the lack, the inability to ensure trade flows means that the, the playing field is tilted to the advantage of multinational firms, of big players at the expense of SME. So let me stop here and give the floor back to Cameron. Thank you. Thanks, Beata. That was extremely interesting. Uh, and I've actually logged uh, 10 questions for you. But I see there are already four on, on the, uh, for, from, the, from the world outside, too. 
and they're actually incredibly good. So I'm going to be do the right thing and dump my questions, at least for the moment, uh, and go to them. And I'd like to start with a very big one, uh, which is um, around the relationship between trade and globalization, and in particular, whether you think the current, both the situation with the pandemic, but also, well, let's describe it as it is, the fairly frosty relationship uh, with many of the, the bigger countries around the world. Is that going to affect the degree of globalization? Do you think will we see these shortening of supply chains as is often feared? So the, this is an excellent question, Cameron. I mean, a lot of people are wondering whether globalization will be rolled back. Um, the US-China trade war is not over. Um, the US-EU conflict is brewing. Um, many leaders will be tempted to protect their markets, and that may become very popular with the public. The public still has in mind uh, the images of shipments of PPE equipment being seized at the borders. So I think it would be very easy um, to sell to use resilience as an argument for protectionism. Now, we did worry about protectionism during the financial crisis, but back then G20 issued statement very early on expressing commitment to free trade. Yeah. This time we have not seen such a statement. Yeah. And because every government is extending help to its firms, it will be very easy to make a case that imports are subsidized mm -hmm. and use existing exceptions under the WTO rule and introduce countervailing duties. So in the absence of global leadership, um, the world may just sleepwalk into protectionism. Yeah, I think that's that's a really interesting point, which I hadn't thought of. And I mean, it's probably obvious if you're in international trade, but but the fact that there's so much support out there for firms gives the, the brilliant cover for protectionist responses. That's a great point. Um, I'm gonna gonna sneakily ask one of my own though questions. Um, that difference in trade drop between just say the French and the Germans, uh, friends and neighbors as they are, 40% to 20%, it does lead you to wonder exactly what the drivers were. And given your work, which was just really interesting around the, the difference between the drop in pay or uh, pay and pray, which I, I love that phrase, uh, and, and insured trade with a letter of credit. Is it that the French are more likely to pay and pray? Does their strong Catholic religion give them more sucker <laughs> and they do more praying and paying than the Germans? Or what, what, what is behind the difference, do you know? Um, so we haven't looked at it in detail. I suspect some of it uh, could be differences, geographic um, differences in where exports are destined. Right. So for instance, Germany um, trades heavily with China. So mm -hmm. they may have um, been affected um, perhaps more. But you know, we know that Eurozone has been um, slowing down. And, and, and that's why we've, we've seen a decline already um, before. And that's, I mean, it's presumably something you could check, I guess, in your data set, because it sounds like it's quite rich. But the, the China example does make a lot of sense. 
Um, let me move to another question, which is also one on my list. Um, so, so I should actually credit Ritash uh, from India for that last question about globalization. Thanks, Ritash. Uh, this one is from uh, John Rosenfield about uh, the role of blockchain or holochain. I have to admit, uh, I'm not on top of holochain, but uh, the role of blockchain in playing a role in international trade contracts post-COVID. And, and uh, I guess the question that I had that's related to this, I mean, 200,000 correspondent banking relationships lost. It's a phenomenally large number. And it's kind of, as you say, a worryingly large number for international trade, particularly with you know, less developed economies, unless there is some other mechanism that can kind of serve that role and, and could, maybe not Wirecard, but, but, but is there some other fintech arrangement that could replace the correspondent banking relations and keep the wheels of trade working and running smoothly? I, I do not know, that's my honest answer, but I hope that somebody would develop an alternative. Now, let me tell you, give you another reason why enthusiasm for uh, trade finance has been dampened. Um, that's because under Basel regulations, trade finance is, receives high risk weighting. So it's treated as risky transaction. Even though in reality, uh, the default rates are tiny because um, transactions are based by collateral, the goods that are being mm -hmm. shipped. Now, you know, but coming back to blockchain, you know, blockchain help with records, um, with, you know, records that could prove what, what uh, has been transacted. The problem always is enforcement. Right, and enforcement is is costly. So at the moment, it's actually my multilateral um, development banks that are stepping um, stepping in and trying to to fill the void. But you know, the chains that I'm happy to talk about are global value chains, right? Because this is the, the other aspect of uh, globalization. So what the pandemic did is it drew our attention to low probability events. And it drew our attention to the pretty good possibility that we may be facing more shocks going forward. You, of all people, um, know very well that climate change is progressing and it's going to uh, bring more adverse weather events. So now it's not just pandemic, it's the possibility of more shocks coming forward. It's uncertainty about mm -hmm. trade policy which created this realization that a long supply chain means vulnerability to shocks. So the question is, will firms re-optimize and move from just in time to just in case? And they are under tremendous pressure from policymakers to do that. Uh, you know, President Macron spoke recently about economic patriotism and when Renault got its five billion euro bailout, it was strongly encouraged to bring high value added activities to France. Mm. Japan is making funds available for its firms to reshore. And I was just on a panel earlier today with um, somebody from China who was talking about some value chains already moving to Southeast Asia. 
But of course, you know, building in resilience is neither cheap nor easy. And, you know, during an economic downturn, very few firms have the courage to increase costs and price. And if you are a car manufacturer with 100 plus first tier suppliers and hundreds of second tier suppliers, it's not a trivial task. It's interesting, this um, kind of trade-off or tension between efficiency on the one hand and resilience on, on the other. Um, I just think about the analogy with the, the energy system, which I understand better than the trading system, or at least I guess it's a subpart of it, where um, you often find people thinking that energy independence gives you that resilience and that energy security. But actually, you look at the data and it isn't necessarily true. Having an international liquid market in a particular product like LNG um, can lead you to have greater security than if you're trying to do everything at home. And I guess I'm wondering whether there's an analogy there with just the general you know, goods and services markets where actually resilience isn't necessarily served by shortening your supply chains. Maybe it's served by thinking a bit more strategically about precisely how those supply chains are, are structured and, and with whom uh, they connect. I don't know, what do you think of that idea? I think there, there exists a pretty good parallel. So policymakers, politicians actually not, often say, you know, we need to reshore to increase resilience. But it's a flawed argument because any country is subject to shocks such as flooding, strikes, um, right? Adverse weather, some countries have earthquakes. So in a sense, bringing production home doesn't solve the problem, right? What solves the problem is diversification. So double sourcing. And, but, you know, it's precisely this double sourcing that increases the cost. Right. Now, you know, in terms of PPE and food, an argument is often made, right? We need to be self-reliant. That's the wrong thing to do. What the way to solve this issue is uh, stockpiling, strategic stockpiling. And, you know, in Britain, there were some shortages of food early uh, in the pandemic. There were no shortages in Switzerland. Switzerland has... Uh, stockpiles of food. This is done by the government in connection uh, with the large supermarket chains, and it costs 12 euro per head per year. Hmm. So it's an incredibly cheap way of ensuring supplies. How fascinating. I mean, there's definitely an analogy there with, uh, with the energy storage space, again, which I know better than, than here, where you can look at the Amount. I mean, it's not called stockpiling, but it's effectively the same thing. Where, where you where you ensure yourself that you've got the supplies that you need in in the event of something going wrong. And in a way, I mean, while it feels like this pandemic has increased costs, you could argue that this brittleness of the system, this lack of resilience, was always there. Uh, and we were just instead of bearing those costs, like you might take out insurance uh, on an annual basis to cover yourself when uh, a shock does happen. We've just been made brutally aware that we didn't really have the systems and the insurance in place. So, you know, the system might be more costly on a year-on-year -year basis, but actually by eliminating these very nasty shocks, you're probably, you're potentially, you're, you're better off by paying for the insurance, as it were, um, uh, uh, rather than just suffering the shock. I guess you'd agree with that. 
Well, I think so. Previously, we made or firms made a calculated decision that it wasn't insurance wasn't worthwhile. Right. So there were shocks before. There was, you know, a Japanese earthquake in 2011, which meant that Japanese automakers in the U.S. had to stop production because they couldn't get parts and components. Uh, but the perception was, you know, an earthquake is a one-off. It's not going to come back tomorrow. But this time it's different. And it is different because we have two shocks, right? We, we have pandemic and we have uncertainty about trade policy. You know, for the past 20 years, we've been taking stable global trading rules, low stable tariffs for granted. I think we no longer can take that for granted. So it's the two types of shocks and the idea that they are likely to come back. And that's, mm. I think, what will increase the need for, for insurance, for action. Now, there's an interesting question coming here from Venusa uh, about the psychological effects of COVID uh, and the implications, you know, for the trade regime and, and for global markets. And of course, I mean, a lot of economics is around expectations, fulfilled or otherwise, uh, and animal spirits. And you've already referred, I guess, to ways in which behavior is changing because people have had a kind of cognitive shift in the way they see the world. Um, so Venusa's question is, will this change perspectives, I guess, around the trade regime, but also about the significance of consumption? I mean, are we more likely to buy locally, source our goods locally? I mean, is there any evidence of that in the data or do you have any personal views on that? So I think the, the most basic question is, um, are we going to change our consumption behavior, right? So now the challenge is how do you, you know, governments say lockdowns are over, but how do you get people uh, to go out and spend? So I think this is the, the, the first issue. How do you revive the hospitality industry if people may still be hesitant to travel, to go to restaurants? Um, also because millions of people, tens of millions of people have lost their jobs, um, people may increase precautionary savings. So they may be less willing to spend. And then, you know, there's this whole issue of uh, expectations um, and expectations related, for instance, to the future of trade policy. So if you remember the deal um, that has been made between the US and China, essentially China promised um, to import a certain amount of, of goods from the US. Mm. And people tracking this say that, you know, the, China is not on track to buy all these goods that they promised. Um, so that means that there is there will be scope for reigniting of the conflict. And, okay. and this is Partially, you know, the reason why some observers are already commenting on um, global value chains moving away from China to Southeast Asia to avoid uh, tariffs on, on, on Chinese products. Uh, I've got a, a kind of personally interested question. I've just spent three and a half hours with uh, business school students on um, energy access. And one of our uh, guest speakers, a chief executive of a, of a a business in India noted that um, tariffs on clean energy 
had been really harmful to, so on panels and et cetera, had been quite harmful, and batteries in particular, been harmful to the deployment of uh, cleaner energy and renewables in India. I just, I guess I'm wondering, given what you say about the potential rise in uh, tariffs for a bunch of reasons, actually, do you, do you think that, I mean, tariffs are harmful for a number of reasons, obviously, uh, and you probably got some measure of the welfare cost of these kind of events. It's presumably in the tens or hundreds of business, billions, but I'm just wondering if there are consequences um, for energy, for healthcare, for other sectors of real social significance as well. I think, uh, you know, the, the, the big discussion now we are having in Europe is about uh, carbon adjustment tax collected at the border. Right. right? So in a sense, if Europe um, gets serious about carbon prices, pricing, um, then there will be a need to prevent leakage by um, by essentially charging the same equivalent of that on imports. Um, and because it's incredibly difficult to implement something like this, I think this will create a lot of uncertainty about treatment of, of production outside of Europe. And this will be another factor that may incentivize firms to bring production back to the European Union, because this will give certainty about um, how carbon taxes will be assessed. So I think this is, to me, this is the, the biggest issue now, you know, interplay between environment and trade. Uh, my, my view has long been, and I know it uh, accords with many, but perhaps not all other economists, that a carbon border adjustment is, a, in a way, it's a pro-trade policy because you're leveling the playing field between domestic and international competitors. So everybody's paying the same carbon price. Uh, I haven't actually ever asked you this question, but as an international trade expert, is that, do you see it the same way or do you see it as a kind of dirty protectionist strategy? You know, the devil is in the details. The devil is how you implement it so it could be used as you know force for good it could be used to focus the minds of of european trading partners to take action on carbon pricing now presumably if they have if they do something on that front there will be no need for carbon adjustment tax uh, but of course it could be misused as a protectionist measure. Yeah, well, I think that, that is a fair enough answer. I um, the, if I may just add, the, yeah. I think the only way it can be made compatible with WTO rules is if you say it doesn't discriminate between domestic and foreign producers, right? And, and you know, that would provide some assurance that it's not protectionist. But of course, you know, with global value chains, with goods uh, embodying components from many countries, it will be incredibly hard, you know, to do the calculation. My, my response to that kind of um, concern has been, uh, in fact, you don't need to be the, need them to be identical. You just need to favor um, the other producer rather than your domestic producer more. So provided you're erring on the side of caution, 
and imposing a lower uh, carbon border adjustment on, on importers rather than on your domestic producers. You're probably safe, aren't you, under WTO rules? You would be safe, but then you wouldn't be popular with domestic producers, right? And, you know, you need to be able uh, to get a buy-in into the policy um, among your population. But then if we're starting from uh, no border adjustment, uh, it's, this is this not, not a case of not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. I mean, your domestic producers would be would be would prefer to have something rather than nothing. Uh, and something is a lot better than nothing, even if it isn't perfection and having absolute equality between domestic and international producers. Well, my sense is that, you know, this would be introduced in conjunction with increasing the price of carbon. And I yeah. think that's, uh, you know, I see. I think, you know, the, the, the biggest challenge at the moment is, you know, we are spending tons of money, um, every government is, we would like to use the money to promote climate change mitigation efforts. Um, but you don't want, you know, you still want to get buying from the population, um, from the business community. And it's incredibly hard um, to, to sell the idea that we will increase carbon taxes at the time of very severe economic downturn. Thanks. So we've got a couple of questions uh, from Ben and from John, again, Rosenfield, about um, trade finance effectively and whether um, the this could be delivered by uh, nation states themselves, and I guess to an extent it is with uh, with Exim Bank uh, uh, and so on. Whether or, or whether private sector banks should be taking a lead in managing these, you know, letters of credit and in insurance products for for the international trading regime. I have to admit, I don't know enough about this as I should, but is is this dominantly? private or public and and do you think there has been or, or could be a shift one way or the other so you know there is a huge industry providing trade finance um you know private industry now there are government agencies um that provide export guarantees and you know exim exim banks you know are sponsored by governments i think the key question is how to make sure um, that whatever is provided by the state is not perceived as state aid. And right. You know, the, this, is, this is the big issue. And in a sense, you know, um, one of the most thorny issues um, that need to be resolved at the WTO is state aid provided by China. You know, if you go back to 2000, um, one, China joined the WTO on what was perceived back then as very tough terms. Um, but, you know, over 20 years, it, it grew incredibly fast. It became a much more important market. And also back then, you know, 2001, it was still the time, you know, end of history. Everybody assumed a state of enterprises would go out, you know, would go away, right? China would move away from state-owned enterprises. Mm. But this has not happened. Yeah. And now, you know, the WTO rules are not being um, 
fit for purpose. And I think, you know, I would expect tightening of rules on state aid going forward. And I think um, that's why state intervention uh, here may be difficult if it's on a large scale. Yeah, that makes sense, actually, that, that we would be heading in that direction. Um, it leads me to one of the other reflections I had as you were talking. Um, this is a, a little bit more perhaps uh, uh, tangential, but given the amount of injections uh, into the into various economies we've had and the potential for you know inflation down the line, possible possibly currency movements as well, and in the context where you know there was this U.S. Chinese dispute about whether the Chinese were an exchange engaging in exchange rate manipulation. Uh, have you noticed any of, of this going on during the COVID price crisis where, where there have been big, I guess, monetary responses that have shifted exchange rates that have affected trade patterns? Or, or is that too early to say or perhaps too marginal uh, uh, an issue? Well, what was striking early on was um, that many emerging market currencies uh, lost value. And one of the trade consequences of that was um, that suddenly it became more attractive for domestic food producers to export rather than sell domestically. And okay. emerging market governments started being worried about food inflation. So they started imposing export bans on agricultural products. And that was extremely worrisome because had they cascaded, we could have artificially created a spike in food prices, even though there's absolutely no concern that we would have shortage of food. And, you know, 10 years ago, we had a case of such spikes. Fortunately, this time, many of these governments have backed out because, you know, these, um, these export bans restrictions are very harmful because they fuel uh, this protectionist rhetoric, right? You know, countries yeah. are banning exports. We need to be resilient. Therefore, we need to protect. That makes makes sense. And it's fascinating how these interconnections can emerge in ways that you hadn't, well, I certainly hadn't anticipated that, uh, that I, I, yeah, very interesting. Um, there's another slightly um, off the wall question here. I hope, um, hope John won't mind me saying that. Uh, but what is the relationship between big data and artificial intelligence in the trade regime? And could this shift as we move into a, a post-COVID trade regime? Wow, what a question. <laughs> uh, I think you know, trade economists tend to be a very conservative bunch. So the most adventurous papers I've seen were on 3D printing and trying to ask, you know, will 3D printing lead to a decline in international trade, right? Why ship goods if you can just uh, print them? Mm. Um, and, you know, at least the, the study I have seen, which was actually focusing on a pretty particular product, hearing aids, where you this part that you fit into the ear and be 3D printed, um, the answer it gave was no, actually, um, trade will not, you know, it, it could actually, 3D printing could be trade promoting. On big data, I mean, 
I don't see why it would harm trade. I actually could see the positives, right? You are better able to assess where the demand is, um, you know, using using um, information, you know, the, the sort of yeah. high frequency information. So that could that could allow you to target your shipments better and your make production more responsive. That makes sense. Um, I'd like to take you back, though, to the point that 3D printing could be trade promoting, at least in hearing aids, uh, perhaps in other uh, goods as well. But w what is the underlying economics that um, that does promote that? I mean, I, I guess I probably need to know the cost structure of the sorts of goods that are 3D printed. Uh, is it energy? Is it the raw materials? And 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 then the the trading the costs of actually moving the goods around to have a sense of why this could be trade promoting rather than trade reducing. So in that particular paper um, written by Caroline Freund and co-authors from the World Bank, I believe the argument um, was, was the following. Before, when you were getting um, a hearing aid, um, somebody had to take an imprint of your ear that had to be shipped somewhere, somebody made in a... Uh, rich country factory, you know, for instance, Denmark is a country that specializes in production of hearing aid. So uh, the imprint had to be shipped and in this factory in a high cost country, they would produce the piece that you needed. Using 3D printing, cut the cost, increase the speed, but primarily by cutting cost, it made it affordable for more people. So it expanded the market. Oh, I see. So now when you have your earpiece um, made locally, then you are just buying the actual electronics that needs to go inside that piece. But, but they're still made in, they're no longer made in Denmark or they are still made in Denmark? So, so the idea was that, you know, you locally get the, the plastic part that gets into your ear, uh -huh. but you're buying the electronics oh, I see. Got from you. Denmark. This yeah, high sophisticated okay. electronics so that promotes expands the market and that you know increases trade. I see. So another way of putting it is perhaps that um, you've got components of a good that can be three D printed, components that can't, and if you expand the market for the overall good, then the components that aren't you know subject to this technology are still going to be traded even more. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, I want to actually, we're running out of time, so we've probably got time for one last question. And I might ask about um, trade in services. So, I've been mainly focused on trade in goods in this discussion. Uh, clearly, the trade in services domestically of haircuts has diminished, which is the classic <laughs> example in your international trade 101. Um, and, and I could probably do with a bit more trade in haircuts myself, but, but <laughs> what are we learning about international trade in services? So, you know, so we have, in a sense, exploited a lot of benefits that have come from low tariffs on goods and low transportation costs. Um, and that's why, in a sense, you know, that there has been a slowdown in global trading goods, in the, in the growth rate of trading goods that predates COVID. So trading services, exploiting differences in wages of skilled workers across countries is the next frontier. And I think here we may see an increase, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic, 
many people have been thrown into this giant experiment of working from home. And once you cross the psychological border to remote work, you know, if you're a British firm or a German firm, why do you have to constrain yourself to British or German workers? You know, why not hire somebody from Poland, Bulgaria, or India? Now, obviously, there are some limitations, time zones, um, data protection regimes. In some industries, there are requirements about where data need to be stored, um, ability to travel. You know, you still want to see your employees once, once in a while. But I think the fact that so many firms have tried remote work Many of them are going to stick with it. And I think that's going uh, to make them think seriously about hiring workers located somewhere else. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and hence, trade in services could get a real kick uh, from this crisis. Interesting. Um, I, 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 th I thought that might be the last one, but I think I'm going to squeeze in one more. Uh, and I, I wanted to ask you, um, so you can blame this one on me, not on anybody else, but just it's a bit more of a parochial question. Here we are, or at least here I am in Oxford, uh, facing Brexit uh, within less than, well, six months. I mean, formally we've left, but potential uh, no deal scenario. And that's being laid on top of a COVID-induced economic downturn and trade issues. Where does this leave this particular country? Uh, are we facing the sunny uplands of global Britain trading with the rest of the world with using our newfound freedoms or, or are we in a bit of a mess? Well, Cameron, if you have broken your leg, leg doesn't matter that you break your ankle as well, right? <laughs> it does matter particularly when you are trying to learn how to uh, walk with crutches. So in a sense, you know, COVID has been such an incredible shock um, to the economy. Anything else that creates further uncertainty and increases costs of, of doing business uh, is less than optimal. That's a lovely line about breaking your leg and, leg and breaking your ankle. My, my fear is we might have broken one leg and then broken the other, which is uh, <laughs> which is significantly worse. Uh, look, thank you very much for sharing all of your wisdom, intelligence, and, and insights from those two papers and for contributing to this uh, special issue of the Oxford Review of Economic Policy. Uh, I'm very grateful, and I'm sure those watching will be grateful too. And be before we wrap up, I just wanted to note that, um, again, joint with the Oxford Martin School, uh, we have three more sessions coming uh, before the summer break, and then some more coming in the new academic year with some authors in this issue. Uh, next up on the 21st of July, which is in five days from today, is... Professor Colin Mayer and Sir Paul Collier uh, on reforming the UK's financial system to promote regional development in post-COVID Britain. So I hope you listening in will join me then to hear Paul and Colin. And I hope you'll all join me again, at least virtually. I'm afraid, Beata, you're not going to hear the, the riotous applause in the, in the audience <laughs> in the lecture theatre in the old Indian Institute on Broad Street. But Take it from me virtually. We're very grateful. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. <laughs>